If you have your Bibles, you can open to Genesis chapter 23. Really, really fitting and appropriate songs, the last two, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death and Christ is Mine Forevermore with uh, the portion of scripture that we have today where Abraham confronts the realities of, uh, of holding the promises of God while at the same time confronting death. The fact of the matter is, is that unless, and of course it could happen, but unless Christ were to return at some time that we don't expect, most of us in this room, if not all of us, will find ourselves in situations like Genesis 23 and 25, which is we will die in our faith. When you reach that moment or when you are confronted with the realities of life and death, it is immensely helpful to remember that the promises of God out live death. That does not mean, don't misunderstand, I don't want anything that I say from this point on, I don't want to give a false impression that if your faith is strong enough or if it's mature enough, that there will not be any uncertainties or fears or qualms or nervousness for your death or that you will not experience sadness and sorrow and grief even heavy sorrow and grief at the death of a family member or a close friend. Our faith and the promises of God do not erase sorrow. It does not take sorrow away. What it does do, though, is it gives us something alongside the sorrow so that our sorrow does not turn to despair. Paul says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's a hard combination to strike. To be sorrowful and rejoicing. But Paul considered that to be one of the traits or the characteristics of his life in union with Christ, in service to him, and in building up others in Christ as well. God's promises outlive death. In a nutshell, that's what it is that Abraham is having to consider, is having to reckon with in chapters 23 and 25. And so what we want to do is try to look at these passages with Sarah's death in Genesis 23 and then Abraham's own death in chapter 25. And we want to consider what is it that Abraham did Uh, How did he think? How did he act? What was Abraham's perspective on life and death, particularly as it pertains to God's promises? Go to Genesis chapter 23 and follow along with me as I read. We will spend most of our time here in Genesis 23 and then skip over to 25. So I'm, I'm going to read 23 but not 25. We'll point out a couple things in 25 with Abraham's death. 
Genesis 23, verse 1, Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of this field, or at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even, all, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the, at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes so that we would see another glimpse of what it means to live by faith, more certain of the promises that lay ahead for us in the future than we are of this present reality. Do that by a unique, gracious work of your Holy Spirit. Do it now, we ask. We need you. Amen. One of the things that we ought to consider in chapter 23 and chapter 25 is that this is more than just a, a straightforward historical account of the fact that Abraham and Sarah had a life together, they lived to an old age, they died and they were both buried. But as is the case with essentially every portion of Scripture, there is something that the author is intending to tell us or is intending to, re, to help us understand by choosing to record these events. The events in chapter 23 with Sarah's death and then in 25 with Abraham's death, which we'll see in a minute, is given to us 
not for mere sentimentality. Oh, look at the poor widower who's now having to bury his wife. Oh, look at the the poor widower now coming to the end of his life. We're to look and to consider that Abraham, as the father of our faith, is doing something when he buries his wife. He's doing something when he approaches his own death that is instructive to us. So I'm going to try to break this down in, in two simple points, one for chapter 23, one for chapter 25. All right? So if, as we're saying in both of these chapters, one of the things that we're seeing in the death of Sarah and Abraham, we're seeing that God's promises outlive death. I'm going to give you two points. Number one, what that ought to mean for us, if God's promises really do outlive death, one, we ought to look to our possession, that's chapter 23, and then chapter 25, we ought to look to prepare. Look to your possession, look to prepare. Chapter 23 then, looking to your possession, what it is that you have. One of the things that is easy to miss, particularly in our English translations, is that there is a significant word that shows up three times in this chapter, but in order to draw attention to its significance, let me backtrack just a little bit. If you turn over a couple pages to Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, this is when Abraham was 99 years old, Isaac has not been born yet. God appears to Abraham, and in the course of reassuring Abraham of his promises, he makes this statement to Abraham in Genesis 17, 8. The Lord said, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What I want you to key in on is that statement that I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land as an everlasting possession. You will own it. You will hold it. It will be yours. That is a significant statement in 17.8. One of the reasons that's important to see and remind ourselves of that statement is because of what happens in chapter 23. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so your English version may have read a little bit differently than mine. Okay, but if you go to verses 4, 9, and 20, which I'll I'll show you in just a second, 4, 9, and 20, in each of those verses, the same Hebrew word that we see in 17, 8 for possession, I'll give this land to you as an everlasting, as an eternal possession, that word shows up three times in Genesis 23. The New American Standard Translation in verse 4 reads, Abraham saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site. Some of you may have a, a marginal reading or something like that in your Bible that says something like a possession for burial or a grave possession. Right? The, the point is, possession is there. What Abraham is looking for, he's looking to get a small possession that he can call his for the sake of burying his wife. And then it shows up again in verse 9. Abraham is asking that they would sell to him a portion of land, this cave that he wants to use as a burial site, and at the end 
of verse 9, Abraham says, For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a possession, for burial, a burial site. And then last, when the author is summing up everything that happens in chapter 23, he says in verse 20, So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a possession by the sons of Heth. God says in 17.8, This land of your sojourning, of your wandering, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants as an eternal possession. From chapter 17 to chapter 23, if we're doing the math right, is a, is a span of 38 years. Abraham is 99 years old in 17.8. Sarah is 89. If Sarah is 89 when God promises to give this land as an eternal possession, when she dies in 23 at the age of 127 years, that puts us at 38 years elapsing between the statement in 17.8 and Abraham now trying to bury his wife. 38 years. 38 years ago, God said, again, not for the first time, by the way, but said to Abraham, this land where you're wandering around, this is going to be your forever possession. 38 years later, Abraham is about to bury his wife, and he is looking at the rapid approach of his own death. What possession does he have after 38 years? He doesn't. That's the tension. That's the problem. God has promised me an eternal possession, and yet here I am approaching the end of my life with my wife, and I have nothing to show for it. Abraham, 38 years later, does not even have a hole in the ground to bury his wife. God says in 17.8, I will give you a possession. Abraham, 38 years later, is having to buy a possession. Do you, do you feel that tension? What, what are you thinking, what are you doing if you're in Abraham's position and your life is all but over and you have little to nothing to show for the promises that God has made to you? Do you give up? You throw in the towel? You say, well, I thought I understood the plain meaning of God's word, but apparently I don't. See, here's, here's the stunning feature of Abraham's faith in chapter 23. We have this tension that exists. On the one hand, Abraham is approaching the end of his life. His wife has met her end. And he has no possession, no permanent ownership in the land that God says will belong to him. There is nothing to show for it. That's reality number one. Reality number two is the promise of God. 
And Abraham looks at reality number one, which is a dead wife, my own impending death, no possession in the land. That's reality number one. And he lays it aside, reality number two, which is God has promised that this is my possession. And what does he do? He acts like this is his possession. He goes and he says, I am utterly convinced that even in the face of death, God's promise is true. And he literally puts his money where his mouth is and he plunks down a bunch of silver to buy a cave. He wants the legal paperwork. He wants the documentation. He wants people to know this is mine because after I bury my wife, when it comes time for me to be buried, I'm going to be buried in my possession that the Lord has promised. When it comes time for my son Isaac to be buried, he will be buried in this possession that I have purchased. The reason that Abraham is buying, is purchasing a possession, is because he is convinced that not just that cave and that field, but all of the surrounding land will be his and will, be, and will belong to his descendants. This is just a temporary down payment. Death, in Abraham's mind, does not negate God's promise. Death is not an obstacle to God fulfilling His Word. In fact, the great irony in chapter 23 is that it's actually through a death that Abraham is led to get his first piece of the land. Death gives Abraham something to hold on to. That's not the way that our culture and society thinks. The world does not know how to think how to act this way, such that death itself is seen and believed and understood to give you a hold on something more. The world and everything around us says just the opposite. When you die, that is you losing everything. And God comes back over and over again in Scripture to say, no. When you die, you have begun to gain everything. To depart and be with the Lord, Paul says, is far better. Nevertheless, it is awkward, it is uncomfortable, 
that Abraham has given the better part of his life to hearing the Word of God, to hearing these promises made to him and repeated over and over and over again and reaching the end of his life with little to nothing to show for it. Isaac is not nothing. Don't don't get me wrong. Isaac is a miracle. Isaac himself is a living embodiment of the fact that God will do miraculous things to fulfill his good word. But let's be honest. How many of us have evidence of God's kindness to us? The momentary or initial promises of God that he has fulfilled, do we find ourselves satisfied with the promises that we've already received? I'll just go ahead and answer for myself. I don't. These promises are good and great and glorious, but there are a whole lot, there's a whole lot more that I'm still waiting to get and waiting to see. Hold your place here. And go to Hebrews 11, the passage that we just read earlier. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All these died according to faith, according to the standard, according to the principle, the rule, the law of faith. What does it mean to die according to your faith? In Hebrews eleven thirteen, it means this. You die without having the promises. That's cheery. Who doesn't want to live that life? All these, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Sarah, on and on and on. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So I take Hebrews eleven thirteen, and I lay that alongside or on top of what's happening in Genesis 23 and what will happen in just a little bit in Genesis 25. Abraham has no possession in the land. He has to buy one in order to bury his wife. The Lord has promised that this entire land, not just this one cave, is going to be his possession. What does it mean to bury your wife according to faith? It means in part that on the one hand, while you recognize how much more there is left to be had, on the other hand, you are more certain and confident about what still remains than what you are doing at this present moment. As sure and confident as Abraham is that his wife is dead and that he is going to bury her, He is that sure and confident that all of the promises of God are going to be made good to him, that he will see and experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. What does it mean 
when you move out of Abraham's predicament and you move into our day and age, what does it mean for us, for Edgewood, to have members who die according to faith? It has to mean, at least in part, that you go to your grave, on the one hand, empty-handed. Paul says, we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it. You go to your grave empty-handed, and yet, you go to your grave fully convinced that you own everything. You go to your grave believing... What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Everything. You go to your grave thoroughly persuaded that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God. And that you will rule and reign with God's anointed king, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to die in faith. It means that you come to the end of your days in this age, in this life, knowing that you are only now just about to start living. Paul says in Romans 5.17, if by the transgression of the one, if by Adam's sin, death reigned and ruled through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. You've heard the saying, there are only two things certain in life. Death and taxes, right? That phrase had to have been coined by a pagan. Paul says, that's not true. You have, to have, you have to add a third. Yeah, death and taxes are certain, but so is life for those who are in Christ. How certain is it that at some day, at some time, you will draw your last breath? Again, unless Christ intervenes and returns, it is 100% certain. Paul says, just as that certainty of death rules and reigns now, much more than that certainty, much more than the certainty of death, is the promise of life. And Abraham being convinced that God's promises do not die with his people, but that God's promises outlive even death, says, 
I'm going to look and I'm going to consider what God has promised. He promised me a possession. Even though I don't have the possession that he has promised, I know that he is going to give it to me. One of the ways that I'm going to demonstrate my unshakable faith is that I'm going to buy, on loan of course, I'm going to buy a piece of this property because I know the Lord is going to give it to me one day. And by the way, he'll just repay me for whatever it is I have to give to buy this cave anyway. Just one other thing to throw in. There's probably a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for. When Abraham is, is interacting with the people, with Ephron in particular, who, who owns the land that the cave is on, right? and Ephron says, oh, Abraham, you know, God, don't worry about it. All, all the people that Abraham has been talking to say, you can, you can bury your dead anywhere you want on our land. See, the problem there is they're basically giving Abraham the option of burying his wife, but not to own the burial site. Abraham doesn't want that. No, no, no. Abraham's thinking in his mind, no, I want the possession. That's what I'm moving towards. And so when he continues to talk and when, he, when Ephraim says, oh, yeah, Abraham, uh, of course you can use my cave. And Abraham says, listen, I'll pay for it. And then did you notice that as they were talking, he says, yeah, the cave and, uh, and the field that's on it, what, what is that between friends? Is Abraham shopping around for a field? Or does this guy not see an opportunity to take advantage of Abraham because he's in a tight spot? Give me a hundred pounds of silver, and I'll give you the field and the cave. And Abraham doesn't bicker or argue. He gives it to him. Now, this is not the main point in Genesis chapter 23, but at the very least, one of the things that it ought to cause us to consider is that when you are looking ahead to the promises that are to come, whatever little trivial things you do possess in this life, you will hold very loosely. You see, if Abraham is most concerned is consumed with the things of this world, he is not going to pay an exorbitant price for this land and this cave. But if Abraham knows that really the true riches, the real wealth is not now but is later, he's free to give money however he wants. You get one of the ways, if, if we can say this, one of the ways that you can prepare yourself for the end is to live right now like you're looking for what happens after the end, right? The more you grasp and try to hold and retain for yourself, the more your life becomes invested in the here and now. And when you get to the end, because all of your time and energy, all of your hopes and dreams have been invested here, you've got very little that you are able to look forward to in the life to come. But if you already, even now, are learning to hold the things of this world with an open hand, where you recognize that these things, whatever I have, I'm just, I'm just managing those things until the reward comes later. 
If you are always thinking about what you're doing with your kids and your money and your occupation and your schooling and your relationships, if all of that is being used to point you in the direction of the age to come, you will find it more likely that when your last breath comes, you are eager to get to your reward. Don't grasp. Christians should be the most generous people in the world. Because how are we going to outgive God? Back to Genesis, chapter 25. Abraham takes a possession in the land as a way to demonstrate his faith that God will give him, will fulfill the promise that he made to him that all of the land will be his possession. And we skip to chapter 25, and here is Abraham's death. I'm going to skip over the the first couple of verses in no way because I'm intimidated by the crazy names. Put that thought out of your mind, right? Maybe a little intimidated. Abraham takes a concubine. He has more descendants. Skip down to verse 5. Genesis 25, 5. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Verse 7, these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied. By the way, our English version has satisfied with life. Whereas in the Hebrew, it's just, he died satisfied. Open-ended. We'll come back to that. And he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Be'er Laharoi. What's going on in chapter 25? Notice that Abraham has more than Isaac to claim as a dependent or as a descendant. As Abraham has approached his death, Abraham gives gifts to the sons that he has through his concubines, and he sends them away, separates them from Isaac, who receives everything. What is Abraham doing before he dies? By the way, just we, we had last week chapter 24. What is Abraham doing in Genesis 24? What, what does he do? What is he, what is he intent on securing a wife for Isaac? Very good, a wife for Isaac. Abraham is looking to what happens 
after he is gone and not looking at what's happening now but what comes in the future, Abraham says, because the promises of God will outlive me and will outlive death, I have a role or responsibility to prepare for the way that those promises will continue after I am gone. And so he sets about finding a bride for Isaac. As he approaches his death, what does he do? He makes sure that there is no one who is going to threaten Isaac's inheritance of the blessings that God has given. That it is Isaac and Isaac only who is going to be known and recognized as Abraham's heir. In other words, Abraham is thinking, what happens after I die? God's promises don't die. Let me do what I can now, knowing that God's promises outlive death. Let me do what I need to do to try to help Isaac enjoy the eternal promises of God. Let me, let me say a word here to those in this room who have more gray hair than colored hair. Right? Yes, it is true that the scriptures indicate that there is wisdom and grace that God's people ought to treasure by those who have lived longer, right? Ours is a culture of youth. Everything has to be new and inventive and creative, whereas the Scripture is saying, no, there is something more valuable than novelty, and it's wisdom. And the best kind of wisdom is gained by people who live a lifetime with the Lord. Here's the other side to that. Part of what it means as you are on the back half, let's say, of your life, is that you ought to consider that the promises of God to His people will outlive you. Therefore, what can I do to better position the generation after me to enjoy those promises that will outlive me? Do you think that way? Abraham did. Abraham had every reason in the world to say, man, I have lived a long and challenging life. I am just about at the end. Let me just hit cruise control and just ease into the sunset. And Abraham appears to be just as busy in the last year of his life as he was when God first called him. Is that you? Do you consider that God's promises are not just for you, don't die with you, but are meant to be enjoyed by those who come after you? And because of that, you need to begin to think about how those who remain after you will enjoy the promises of God? God will build His church. 
He does not need any of us, I don't care how young or how old, to build a church, whether it's in Edgewood or anywhere else. But it is a unique privilege that we can say, knowing that God builds his church, I have the joy and the privilege of being able to contribute to that work. But you can't do that if you're grasping. You can't do it if you're too self-centered and focused on your own needs. And then notice also, last point that we'll make here before we shift to the Lord's Supper. Notice that when Abraham is said to approach his last day, in verse 8, he breathed his last, he died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied. There is probably... No greater position to be in when you draw your last breath than to say, I'm satisfied. Hear me, not because of the material possessions or gain, but because Abraham knew and lived a life in fellowship with his God that said, all that I need, he will provide. Whatever he doesn't provide, I don't need. I am satisfied. And I'm satisfied now because there is infinitely more that he's going to give me after I draw this last breath. So Psalm 90, 14 in a psalm that talks about the fact that this life is heavy and we go through this life sighing and groaning because of our sin and because of the corrective work that God has to do to keep us and to put us on the right path. Psalm 90, 14 says, Oh, satisfy us, same Hebrew word, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. That kind of satisfaction will not come if you're trying to find it what, by what's right in front of your nose. That kind of satisfaction, that singing over the joy of God's loving kindness comes from Him. And you can get it. You can have it. He gives it. He gives it freely. More than what you will ever need. He gives it day after day after day after day. But you have to have your eyes set on the things that are to come. You cannot get bogged down and tied into the trivial, fleeting, temporary things of this life. As we transition to communion, turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. Men, just relax. I'll let you know when you need to come forward to help us distribute the elements. Some of you are probably thinking, oh no, he told him to relax. 
We've got another 30 minutes. We don't. We don't. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. Why did God not give to Abraham everything that he had promised when he could have? Hebrews chapter 11, skip down towards the end of the chapter, verse 39 and 40. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because... This is stunning because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Do you hear that? Do you know, do you understand that what Hebrews is saying there is that this was not just a random process that God had where he said, I'm going to make promises, but I'm going to delay it by, let's say, oh, a hundred or a thousand years. The reason that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the people working their way through the Old Testament, the reason that they did not receive, he says, no, if I give Abraham everything now, I won't be able to give something better to this crazy group of people who are going to be seated at 3564 Forest Road in Columbus, Georgia on May 2nd, 2021. Abraham, you have to wait. Because they are going to be brought into these promises. Abraham, you'll get what's coming to you, but you won't get it apart from them. Don't say them, us. You won't get it apart from us. You are in Genesis 23 and 25. The fact that Abraham had to buy a burial site for his wife and not just simply put her in land that he already owned. He did not have a possession to his name because God was thinking about you. He had provided something better for us. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Verse 15. Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will never again eat it until, there's the delay, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. That means that what we're doing right now is in one sense 
in the same spirit and mindset of Abraham buying a burial site for his wife. We are taking from these elements as a way to say we are thoroughly convinced that because God has given us Jesus Christ, that all of the promises of God will be given to us in the kingdom to come. This is a small taste of what lies ahead of us in the future. Last place to turn to on that thought. Turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Verses 6 through 9. We're about to eat a little wafer and drink out of a little tiny minuscule cup. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from the faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. One of the things that we are doing now as we partake of the elements is we are reminding ourselves of what Jesus said to His disciples in the upper room. That this little taste This little drink is a foreshadowing of a greater blessing, a greater feast to come. But that greater feast is only on the other side of death. The down payment, the sign that Abraham would receive, all that God had promised to him was a tomb for his wife. And what does Jesus go on to do? The sign that we will enjoy, all that God has promised to us, is a tomb. Empty. By his death, by his resurrection, we are assured that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Men, if you'll come forward now to help distribute the elements.
Psalm 90, verse 13 and 14, do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. If you'll take the wafer, and as you take and eat it, consider that in order for you to be satisfied with his loving kindness, the son had to be beaten and bruised for your joy. Take and eat. And if you'll take the cup, consider that Jesus with his disciples said that this cup is the blood of the new covenant. His blood was the blood of the new covenant. And the certainty and the surety of enjoying his loving kindness is sealed by his own death. Knowing that as Jesus gave his life to the very end, we would have fullness of life and could be satisfied with his loving kindness. Take and drink. Now, Father, we ask that you would help us to go out from here fully convinced that your loving kindness will follow us all the days of our lives, that we have a greater reward waiting for us in the age to come than we do in anything that this world could offer us now. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because, because we're a little over time, I'm just going to go ahead and dismiss us. Terry Hathaway, one of our elders, will be at the door. He'll greet you on your way out. If you're here and you have a question about anything that we've talked about today or a question related to the church, I'm going to hang down, hang around the front down here on the Oregon side to my left, your right. If you have a question about anything, you're welcome to come down and talk, but we appreciate you being here this morning. Thank you, and have a great afternoon. You're dismissed.